The theme of our Mission Festival weekend is a provocative question, is Jesus worth it? And this theme is inspired by the writings and the life of Nick Ripkin, who's behind me, our, our featured guest, our speaker this morning. He's the celebrated author of the best-selling book, Insanity of God. We'll be showing the movie, The Insanity of God, tonight. Uh, some other books are The Insanity of Obedience and The Insanity of Suffering. He and his ministry partner, his beautiful wife, Ruth Ripkin, they've journeyed for over 36 years into the roar of the lion den. They've been going to the roar of the lion in the lion's den and to the most hostile places on earth to advance the kingdom of God. From the, the city of Mogadishu, Somalia, to the the gulags of Russia, to the persecuted church of China, to the tribal warfare zones of Afghanistan. Nick Ripkin speaks with an authoritative voice. And I, just like the, the Apostle Paul as he proclaims to the church at Philippi, he, I want to know and experience Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed into the likeness of his death. Nick Ripkin sojourns with the living God in such a way as that. Give him your full attention. Give him your full attention today. It's a special moment. And you won't have any problem because he's a captivating, captivating speaker. But let the Holy Spirit speak to you today and empower you to obey the truths that you learn. Nick. That uh, person he described isn't the same person I see in the mirror. Um, this, you know, what we're talking about uh, this, this, this weekend and what this church is doing continuously is trying to change the question and change the tone of, of, of you not having to, to look in your own heart and and ask, uh, do I have to go? Once Jesus really takes root in your soul and you see the brokenness of the world, you'll beg God not to make you stay. And, and you'll see the, the, the world as, as, as the peoples of this world that he opens to you. And, and today, just like it was it, when, the, when the Bible was written, is, is people are crying out, uh, come over and help us. And, and, and I love what one of our best friends and who's been uh, our supervisor for 17 years says, the only place on this planet where Muslims are not coming in significant numbers to Jesus are the places we're not going. Wow. And that could be you. Now, it almost sounds self-serving when I ask the question, is, is how do you engage the kingdom of God when, when, the, when the Taliban is your environment, when, when ISIS might be uh, uh, in your backyard, when, 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 like it was for us in Somalia, civil society continued to, to melt down to watch them uh, 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 hunt down Christians the way we would hunt down rabbit uh, animals in Kentucky and, and, and put them out of their misery with no compassion whatsoever. But today, the question that I want to lay before you or, or the thought that I would hope that uh, resonates in your heart, 
makes you have conversations with those that you love. And as you look in the mirror and, and see the person for whom Christ dies for, is, is what Ruth and I can say this morning that we cannot say to 70, 80% of the world, and that is for you, the altar of God is open through the music, through the preaching of the word, through Sunday schools, through relationships. You have full access to God when we can't say that to at least 2.8 billion people on the planet that don't have a, a single scrap of scripture in their language. There's not a single person like you carrying the gospel. There's not a single spiritual song being written or being sung by, by godly, talented people that you've had before you this morning for most of the world. We, we, we can't say to them, through our lives and through your lives, because we're not there, we can't say to them, the altar of God is open, uh, have access to the kingdom of God. When, when we met, uh, uh, she was about 20 years, 26 years of age when we met her, and she, she is the one that, that the, the, the Taliban, uh, the tribe that that is, the race that that is, that defined her world. Now, one of the things I want to uh, rush to say that you'll discover as you travel the globe that God has created every peoples on this earth with a way to engage the supernatural. Every, every tongue, tribe, every religion has that built into their DNA. And yet we could not say to this young lady, the altar of God is open because when we met her, she had never met anybody like you. She, she, she didn't know that such a thing as this and worship such as this could be part of her eternal experience. And, and God does what God does. The way that Muslims generally interact with the supernatural is through dreams and visions. They have them all the time. They talk about them all the time. They'll do it at the breakfast table, at the dinner table. They'll do it where the guys are smoking the hubbly-bubbly. It's just something that they do. It's how they interact with the supernatural. What is miraculous is that God breaks into that way of interacting with the spiritual world, and he changes the content. And by the hundreds, by the hundreds, Ruth and I have sat with Muslim families Men, women from that world who have believed in Jesus and they just in normal voices uh, recall how they heard a voice without a body say, find Jesus, find the gospel. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But if you hear that, what do you do next? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Would you, would you like to walk into the mosque and say, I had a dream this morning and I heard a voice say, find Jesus, find the gospel? How's that going to work out for you? And, and uh, uh, she, she had the dream, and she dreamed of this blue book. And this is pretty consistent across much of the Muslim world. She dreamed of the Bible, a blue book, and she, as her family was used to doing at the breakfast table the next morning, she said, that's the strangest dream. 
not like any dream I've had. I, I dreamed of this book, and, and a voice told me to find the book and, and to believe in whomever I found in that book and her family said, well, we don't know what to do with that. Well, this is, seems like a, a meaningless something until two weeks later, her powerful father religiously, economically come in the office, shut the door, stand at attention before me, unlocks a desk drawer, pulls out a burlap wrap something, and as he uncovers this blue book, he says to her, I've had this for a few years. I wanted to read it to see what Christians really believe. And because of your dream, I'm giving it to you, but you listen to me, daughter. This is a dangerous book. This book could get you killed. And he gave it to her. He told her to be careful. She wasn't. She read it as Muslims are wont to do when they are literate. She read it three times. She found what her dream told her to look for. And as much as anyone can find without having anything like this, anybody to mentor her, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, reading it those three times, she gave her sins to Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus. And through that blue book, she discovered an altar to the kingdom of God that has forever changed her. And when we caught up with her... Uh, Nobody told her to do it. It's just the nature of being a child of God. By the time we met her, she had led, by her account, 26 Muslim women to Christ. They had been baptized in, in small groups around that area where your life is at risk every day for following Jesus. Now, now there's three death threats against her. Uh, you, you won't be surprised at them. One, because she left Islam for Jesus. Secondly, uh, in their words, she was converting others, other women particularly. We had never met anybody like her in the world thus far. And thirdly, she was working for the United Nations in, in the sphere of, of human and civil rights, representing women in refugee camps that were being uh, uh, physically uh, abused uh, by the Taliban having them arrested, and sometimes making, having them thrown into jail. This is a young, believing, single lady you don't want to mess with. And as she told us her story, we began to discover things that weren't so enticing because the United Nations, fearful for her life, was trying to pull her out of her country, her people group, relocate her in America, in, in St. Louis, Missouri, in order that she might have a safe place in which to live her life, and we begged her not to go. We begged her not to go. Sounds harsh. Matter of fact, it is harsh. But we were able to say to her, because we have sat at the feet of believers in persecution in over 72 countries, listening to those who could get out and won't get out, and who can't get out, and for the sakes of the kingdom of God, read Hebrews 11. Go home and read that. That's being relived out daily in the world where Christians pay high prices for their faith. And we begged her not to go. We said to her, perhaps the salvation of the women in your people group is contingent on you staying here. Now, here, I'm, I'm not blowing this off. 
staying here and suffering for Christ. She said, they're, 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 they're going to kill me. We understood that that was a strong possibility. We could also hear believers in persecution quoting again and again and again those biblical passages that Jesus said, when persecution comes upon you, go to the West. Go to America. Go where it doesn't cost you anything. Jesus said, no, when persecution comes upon you, you go to the next village and you go to the next city and you, you go to the next town. And Jesus never, ever hinted at the fact that we should be extracted from our sufferings, but to know that he's with us in our sufferings. Now, we're talking about a suffering that can be avoided if you just leave Jesus alone and you just leave witness alone. You don't have to go through this stuff. Now, let me just leave her, park her there for a minute because I want you to look with me uh, at Matthew chapter 10 and into Matthew chapter 11. There, there, there is some astounding stuff going on in the Bible. I became a Christian. Uh, by the way, uh, my wife and I are both PKs. She's a pastor's kid. I'm a pagan's kid. That, that gives us, you know, all the spiritual tools that we need. She, she can't remember not knowing Jesus. I remember going to bed night after night after night wondering where this world came from, where it's going, and what happened to me when I died. And I grew up in the midst of the Bible Belt, worked construction, worked on a farm, but felt uh, totally as if the altar of God had never been opened to where I could access it. We begged her to stay. Now, what Jesus is doing in Matthew 10, he's pushing a reset button spiritually. Because up to then, if you read the stories of the Old Testament, how was God known? How was God followed? Why was he believed in? Was it not through the stones that was in David's sling that slew Goliath? Was it not in the chariots and the armies of Israel as they overcame their enemies? Was it not through the strong right arm of people like Samson? And Jesus said, this basically has been your history, but now the kingdom of God is going to pivot because I'm sending you out. As sheep among wolves, for goodness sakes, who does that? I came into Christianity Listen to the church read those words as if that they made sense. As if that was like, okay, it's, it's a birthday party. Growing up, uh, wanting to be a veterinarian, working with animals. I, I know a sheep never wins a fight with a wolf. And yet Jesus said, this is how my glory is going to be experienced. Here's how the altar of God is going to be open. Not only am I sending you a sheep among wolves, read it when you get home. If you don't know it, later in Matthew 10, he said, I'm going to orchestrate your incarceration. I'm going to orchestrate you being arrested by the secular and the sacred authorities, by governments, by militaries. I'm going to give you access through your arrest to places you would never have them in a dozen lifetimes. And Jesus said, you are to go. They're going to do bad things to you, but I'm sending you as a witness to them. Well, okay, 
sheep among wolves, being arrested. All that's pretty good in theory, but I thought Jesus would give us a space of time to adjust to this reset, but in Matthew chapter 11, it happens to his best friend. In chapter 11, you're, you're reminded of the story of John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, if, you all, if you're a Christian, you have just a, a, a small understanding of the Bible, you know that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. He was the nearest thing to a pastor and a best friend that Jesus had. He said of Jesus, I'm not unworthy, I'm unworthy to unlace his sandals. He said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He was there at the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit fell and said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm pleased if there was anyone on earth more than Mary, the mother of Jesus that knew who Christ was. It was John the Baptist. And now Matthew 10 is being fulfilled in Matthew 11 because John has been intemperate. He's looked at Herod, the king, and said to him, you may think you have godlike characteristics, but I'm saying to you, you will not take your brother's wife. You will not take her into your bedroom. You will not have knowledge of her. I am pronouncing the wrath and the judgment of God over you. You know what? You can do that to kings and powers, but there's a price to be paid, and John's paying it. He's in jail. Now, now things got escalated so quickly not only is John in prison, but they're about to separate his head from his shoulders. Now, I'm a Christian of two weeks. I've read about Daniel in the land's den. I've read about those Hebrew young men and, and the furnace. I, I've read stories about David and, and Goliath. And, 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 and here, John the Baptist is in that same genre of, of unbelievable prophetic men and women and I expected John in prison facing death to stand up and say to those coming after him with fire in his eyes, I will die the way I have lived. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it. This guy who announced the coming of Jesus, who, 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 who baptized Jesus, sent his disciples when he heard about what Jesus was doing to ask Jesus the most strangest of questions. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you actually truly the one? Or do I, we wait for someone else? What in the world is that all about? I would have never expected such Words uh, uh, come out of John's mouth. And, and if John acted in prison, unlike I thought at that time a man of God should act, Jesus' words perhaps confused me more. It's bad when, when the prophet doesn't do what you think he should do. It's worse when Jesus answers in a way that you haven't been trained, you, you haven't been taught you haven't have a way of thinking because Jesus says to John, well, what would you think he should say? If somebody asks you today or this week, prove to me that Jesus is the Messiah, how, how's the conversation going to go? 
What, what are you going to say about Jesus to prove he's the son of God? Uh, he, 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 he. What, what are you going to say? How are you going to prove that he's the Messiah? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John what you see, what you hear, that the blind are regaining their sight, the deaf are regaining their hearing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, the dead are being raised, and, and the, the gospel, the good news is so powerful that rich people aren't keeping it to themselves, they're giving it to the poor people. Hear the words of the Lord. Jesus says clearly in Matthew 11 that his Messiahship is always authenticated by what you and I do with him in the marketplace. What you do with Jesus at school tomorrow, what you do with Jesus at work tomorrow, what you do as you have conversations with neighbors and friends, as you do as you unpack life, as people ask you, how can I trust Jesus to be who I have been told that he is? You say to them, watch my life. Watch our church's life. Watch what the body of Christ does with Jesus in the marketplace, and the Messiahship will be made clear to you. Wow. So the question before us is, what, what's Jesus doing in the marketplace? Well, I've already shared with you quite a bit, uh, just briefly, uh, about what he's doing with Muslims. Uh, for about the 300-plus Muslims, and there's people, there's people in the, within the sound of my voice outside in booths that where we have sat with hundreds, they've sat with thousands of Muslims who have believed. A lot of commonalities of what Jesus is doing in the, in the marketplace. They're having dreams and visions. They're talking to their neighbors about it. They're finding the scriptures and reading them. God is sending someone to them like he sent Joseph to Pharaoh, like he sent Ananias to Saul, like he sent the, 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 uh, Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch, asking them, do you understand what you're dreaming about, what you're reading and when they say no, then an altar of God is opened and they're ushered into the kingdom of God. What is God, Jesus, doing in the marketplace? Go with this church to South Asia. Folks, you want to see poverty? Go to the poorest of the poor there. Go to the low of caste. Go and experience, moms, experience your children in a place where for every generation that your oral history can go back and if something doesn't change and it hasn't yet every generation after you uh, there'll be one medically trained person for every one million to every two million of you and moms what would you do to your children to keep them alive when you think they are possessed by demons, when they have illnesses that can't be explained, there is no medicine to treat them. We have watched all over this world of things that mothers do to their children, trying to bring healing when there's no healing to be found in the way that they burn, restrict, and do things trying to bring life to kids who are dying. What is God doing in the marketplace? These young evangelists, they're going by fours, they're going by sixes, and they're going by eights. 
and they're going to places where they have never met a medical person, and they're asking them, how many of you are sick and hands are being raised? How many of you want to be healed? And the same hands are going up, and in the name of Jesus, Matthew 11 is coming alive. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Everything you read in Matthew 11 is happening today. Here's, here's what Ruth and I bring to the table. We recognize a lie that Satan has told the church, especially in regard to missions that the church has believed, and that is that, that Satan whispers to us that the Bible is a book of authority. The Bible is a book of power. The Bible is a, clue, a clear and authoritative record of what God used to do. With the implication being, he's not doing all that stuff anymore. And for 36 years, as we've traveled the people groups and the marketplaces of this earth, we come to you with humility, but still with boldness to say to you, everything that God has ever done in history, everything that God has ever done in the Bible, God is still doing. He hasn't rested. He hasn't taken a vacation. He is not a past tense God. But I'm telling you what, a present active tense God is a scary encounter. A retired one is easier to handle. What is God doing in the marketplace? Go to East Asia. Meet 150, 170 house church leaders, men, women, rural, urban, highly educated, oral communicators, and they will inform you that 40% of them have already been in prison for three years just for their faith. They asked me one day, I haven't shared this with the staff here, they asked me one night after 14 hours of listening, they, they said, uh, I stepped down off the little platform I was learning from to, to go get in the, the little place I was sleeping. And they said, where are you going? I said, I guess I'm not going anywhere. They said, you're the only seminary trained person here, and you've already heard from us. We, we want you to teach us. And I said, okay, here's the train coming. What am I going to teach you? They said, you know, we've told you already 40% of us have been in prison for our faith. That means, Nick, that 60% of us have yet to go to prison. And we want you to teach us how to get ready for jail. I haven't had that course. I haven't heard that sermon. I haven't discovered that in the exhaustive Bible study. How to prepare to go to jail. These, I, I, I sat with a young man in his early 30s, and he was as bright as they come. And as I finished learning from him, an 83-year-old man who'd been in prison for three, year, three times for three years came from behind the tree where he's quietly listening, and he came up to me and he said, Nick, you can't trust this guy. I said, oh, my goodness, is he from the government? Is he, is he a Judas? He, he laughed. He said, you're so funny. He said he's going to be a great leader one day, but he hasn't been to jail yet. You can't trust him. What's, what's God doing in the marketplace? Every house church we can find prior to 1970 started with miracles of healing. What's God doing in the marketplace? They're growing so rapidly by being in prison, security policemen that we have interviewed, learned from, they said uh, uh, to me, they said, well, we couldn't, uh, 
we couldn't arrest Christians and put them in jail, and we could not not arrest them because if we arrested them and put them in prison, their faith grew too deep, and we've left them out of prison. Their faith went too broad, so we couldn't arrest them, and we could not arrest them. I said, I feel your pain. Sorry for your troubles. And they came to Jesus because of the Christians that they tortured, loved them in turn. Try that on. And I watched millions of believers organize themselves in groups no longer, no bigger than 30. They changed the houses that they meet in regularly. They changed the days of the week they meet. They changed the hours of the day that they meet. Uh, across the border from this great nation, I sat with a family of four. When they sing the praises of God, they sat with their knees touching and they moved their lips and they would not let any sound come out because if the music is heard through the doors and windows, the paper-thin walls of that apartment or that house, there will be security policemen at your house that evening and you and two other generations of your family will go to a labor camp so they move their lips no sound comes out I, I watched them when I first we first started going there almost almost 20 years ago and watched them 170 leaders in one place that had seven Bibles among them and they were so thrilled that we were walking them through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, story by story, that they vowed unto God that everybody there got to go home with at least one book of the Bible. And so they would ask this house leader, have you taught Genesis? If he said no, they tore it out and gave it to him. They asked a young lady, have you sung the hymn book of the Bible? She said, I didn't know a uh, we had one, and they tore out the Psalms, and she went home with it. This, this evangelist, have you had the Gospel of John? He said, no, they tore it out and gave it to him. And I felt so sorry for the guy that got Philemon. You know, one page. You know, your neighbor gets the Gospels, and you get a page or a uh, half a page. I, 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 I watched them, what they did. I, I went to one village, and I asked those villages, who are those people meeting over there? And they said to me, those are the people that when our little daughter, our, this little girl died, they came and prayed for her, and she lived. That's what non-believers were saying about the believers and 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 uh, my heart is is overflowing and and bursting and 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 then all of a sudden they ask me about you and I describe this and I describe this and I describe how you do this thing called church and their response was horrifying they just started sobbing broken and I was so scared and I asked them, what, what have I done? What, what have I said to hurt you like this? And they said, you don't know? I said, Ruth's not with me, so I don't know what I did wrong. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is. And, and they said, you don't understand? I said, I don't have a clue. And they got hurt. And they got angry. And they said, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? That we tear our Bibles in shreds so that everybody can go home with at least one book of the Bible, and you tell us that in Ethiopia you have seven 
Bible translations for yourself, which is the greatest miracle? God heals 100,000 people here in this country, and maybe three to five of them can figure out that healing came from a God, and his name is Jesus, and believe in that Jesus. And you tell us that you can go to a Baptist hospital, see a Baptist surgeon, and he will treat you 24-7, get you back on the road, which is the greatest miracle, son. 40% of us have been in prison just for sharing the gospel and leading the flock, and you tell us that the pastor of this church could preach seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and you're telling us that nobody gets beaten, nobody loses their job, nobody goes to jail, nobody's killed, which is the greatest miracle, son. You've watched us set with our knees touching. And you've got praise teams that write music straight from the throne of God. And you can sing on your radio stations and on your TV programs. You can have your cantatas. You can do whatever you want to do. And nobody goes to jail. Nobody's beaten. Which is the greatest miracle, Ripken? And I cried like a broken child because what, a, what have I called this? This that we call church in America. You know what I've called this? I've called this common. And I think this is normal. And I, and I, and I, I believe that this is what I deserve. God owes it to me. And, and if I don't like it, I can go find a, another dozen just like it. You see, here's, here's my... Here's the, con, uh, the confusion I have, the, the, the struggle that I have. If you choose not to believe that God is sending millions of Muslims' dreams and visions, okay, maybe that's their miracle. And if you choose to believe that Matthew 11 is not being lived out around this world with the blind seeing on and on and on, that God's doing everything that God has ever done, and you choose not to believe that's happening in South Asia, well, perhaps, I don't believe it's right, but perhaps that's their miracle. And if you choose not to believe that your East Asian men and women in prison are leading tens of thousands of people to Christ and starting movements in jail, and you choose not to believe that, well, maybe that's God's peculiar action for them. But what about this? What do you call this? Do you think this is normal? That this is common? Anywhere else? And this is what we deserve? They, they, they resettled this young lady in St. Louis before I got home to Ruth. Ruth brought her to Kentucky where we were staying for a small period of time, and we took her to church for the first time in her life, and we sat back over here. And the service started like the second service this morning with a whole family being baptized. Father, mother, teenage daughters, two of them, and a young son, brother, and this young lady sitting between Ruth and I, never been in a mixed audience before, never, never been where husbands and wives sit together in public, let alone single people. 
She began to fidget. I thought she's having a panic attack. And I said, uh, sister, if you need to go out, it's okay. Uh, Ruth will go with you, and I'll be there as soon as the service ends. And she said in the loudest whisper, I can't believe it. You're telling me that a whole family, father, mother, daughter, son, are being baptized. And are you telling me that he's not going to be killed? And that those girls are not going to be forced to marry somebody 50 and 60 years older themselves and disappear in, in the heart of something like Islam. You're, you're telling me that nobody's going to be beaten, nobody's going to go to jail, nobody's going to get tortured. She said, if I go back to my country and my people and tell this miracle that I'm observing this morning, my testimony is finished because nobody will believe that God can do such a thing. Nowhere know how and she said I think I'm going to stand up and shout I said girl stand up and shout they kick you out Ruth will go with you you don't have to go by yourself and she said why is everybody sitting here why aren't they up shouting and clapping and dancing why don't they see the unbelievable unrestricted miracle that is this today Folks, how can we ever expect that we will make Jesus known miraculously in the marketplace when we don't recognize his miracle that is this right now? The altar of God is open. Unrestricted, gates thrown wide, Find salvation, find healing for your marriage, find direction for your life. Discover the nations that are crying out today. Come over and help us. Uh, they are dreaming. Uh, they are being experiencing the supernatural, and they can't put feet. They can't put voice. They can't place definition because they don't have someone to tell them that the altar of God has been opened in their midst and his name is Jesus. Church, church, claim your miracle this morning. See yourselves the way the rest of the believing world sees you in Jesus' name. Amen.